Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hi, Jim. Hi, Maeve. How are you? I'm I'm okay. How are you? You're okay? Good. Yeah, Good. too bad. Let's tell the people what they want to hear. <laughs> uh, this is Social Distance, the Atlantic's podcast about the pandemic. I'm Jim Hamblin, a doctor and a staff writer at The Atlantic. And I'm Maeve Higgins. I'm a comedian and I'm a writer too. Well, there's so many big stories that are happening right now. I don't know where to begin. But we do have an update to what we talked about last week with outdoor masking regulations. The CDC just updated their guidelines. Are they in line with what you were saying last week? Yeah, I think so. It seems the CDC listened to the podcast and changed <laughs> their minds. <laughs> and so policies are updated accordingly. No, it's that um, the recommendation is now that Americans who are fully vaccinated no longer need to wear masks outdoors if they're walking, running, hiking, or biking alone with members of their household or if they attend small outdoor gatherings. Okay. Does that sound reasonable to you? Yeah, that sounds good. Do you worry about like different directives for vaccinated and unvaccinated people? Yeah, that's where it can get complicated, right? It's very much an honor system. Um, yeah. I guess if you're having that. Although I've said for a long time, even before people were vaccinated, that if you're out running or walking alone or with people who are in your bubble, who you're, you know, living with, you can mm -hmm. be outside together. And you, if you're not near people, you shouldn't need a mask. Um, mm -hmm. But... <laughs> Uh, now that is clear, and it's doubly true if you're vaccinated. So if you're in crowded gatherings, um, you know, gatherings where you don't know who's vaccinated, who's not, if you're at your kid's soccer game and people are screaming and, uh, uh -huh. you know, it's, it's definitely possible to, to transmit. So I would, would wear that just as a, an extra layer of protection and probably just for the culture of wearing masks, you know, like I know everyone at this kid's soccer game is wearing masks. So it's just it's just what we do. Right. Um, it's like, it's like what we're screaming at them too. That's, it has to be appropriate and it has to be <laughs> encouragement. And <laughs> yeah, we probably shouldn't get into this, but I know there were some issues with you attending some <laughs> soccer games. Uh, I just get so it, riled up. It was constructive feedback, but it, you mm -hmm. know, the kids, they just want to be told they're good. Yeah, they do. And, but the thing is, you know, when you're an Irish person speaking English, Swear words are your sort of like your chisel into the, <laughs> you know, oppressive language that is English. So it comes out sometimes as, you know, people think, wow, you know, in insane, you know, like <laughs> absolutely violent and insane, you know, but actually it's just a passionate people. <laughs> and I think the other whole thing about that match, I didn't realize you knew about the soccer match and the arrest and everything, but the, <laughs> <laughs> the interesting thing about that was, why am I in trouble? I don't even know any of these kids. Yeah, that's just it. You know, you know? free free advice you were giving out, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I feel fine about that entire thing and done my community service. Everything's good. <laughs> Everything's good. <laughs> um, but uh, Jim, I have some nice news from my side of the planet, which is finally my dad has an appointment for his vaccine. Oh, so, great. Yeah. 
he's 65 so Ireland is just starting to wow get to 65 year olds now so we're very happy he's getting it at the end of the week and then hopefully my mom in the next couple of weeks she's 63 so they're going pretty strictly like year by year yeah 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 that's a stark reminder of how far the gap is U.S. lots of states are kind of begging 18 year olds healthy 18 year olds to come get vaccinated Mm -hmm. right now (laughs) In the U.S. because we, we've uh, stockpiled so many, hoarded, if you will, so many vaccines. But uh, that's great news. Are you, did you all celebrate? Um, yeah, I think that we are going to celebrate on Friday. But, you know, we're still in lockdown. So celebrating just mm. means <laughs> the four of us just being like, oh, you again, T? Yeah. Um, which is <laughs> fine. I mean, like, it's certainly... <laughs> obviously all my friends in the US and it's you know different problems right like people are saying oh I feel kind of shy about talking to strangers you know re-entry problems and then Mm -hmm. here it's like severe lockdown and then obviously the way we see in other parts of the world like the virus is is at its worst point ever yeah yeah globally things are as bad as they've ever been numbers wise Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this disparity is sort of um, unnerving. It's unnerving. It feels like to, to to be in a place like the U.S. where things are looking good, you know, in New York City, things are looking good, and um, that we've sort of built up this bubble of immunity in this mm-hmm. country is, it feels disconcerting. Yeah, I know we said last week we said we were going to talk about long COVID, but um, then I think we felt we should focus on the global picture this week. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I mean, we absolutely need to talk about long COVID, but maybe that's that's next week for now. Let's talk about mm-hmm. what's happening in India specifically. India has set daily coronavirus records for almost a week now. The pandemic mm-hmm. is worse there than it's ever been anywhere. And this is the country that is known for supplying much of the world usually with vaccines, a huge supplier of vaccines, something like 60% of vaccines come from India during normal times. Um, And there was already messaging that that, that people thought a lot of the worst was was behind India. Um, And so this is at least somewhat unexpected, at least from people who haven't been watching closely. So let's mm-hmm. talk to someone who has been watching closely, staff writer Yasmin Sirhan uh, for The Atlantic. She's based in London and she's been covering global issues, including what's unfolding in India right now. Hi, Yasmin. Hi. Hi, Yasmin. Nice meeting you. This is Maeve. Nice to meet you, Maeve. Hi. <laughs> We're not actually that far away from each other. You're in Ireland, right? I'm in Ireland, and where are you? I'm based in London. Oh, I'm waving. <laughs> oh, I can see you. I can see you just across the channel. <laughs> oh my gosh. I didn't realize it was that close. Oh my God, that's such a lovely... She's wearing such a beautiful pair of earrings, Jim. <laughs> Thank you, they're new. Oh, man. Yeah. You must have your binoculars out again. <laughs> Um, Yasmin, thank you so much for joining us. How are things with you? Um, here in the UK, things are going fine, but I'm actually really, really excited about the situation back home in the United States because, mm-hmm. um, as you all know, vaccination has been opened up widely to the general population, and my mom is getting her vaccine tomorrow. So um, this has been like a long oh. campaign of me bugging them about getting an appointment, and they've finally done it. So 
Oh, that's wow. great. Congrats. Yeah, that's wonderful. <laughs> this feels as close to like my vaccine moment as I'm going to get in the interim. So I'm like kind of excited. They're like, basically I'm living through them at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, we live vicariously through our parents. That's something that happens. <laughs> well, it was kind of a silly situation because they could get vaccinated. And because I feel like I've spent so much of my time focusing on the countries that don't have enough vaccines, I've kind of been bugging them like incessantly like a parent. So we've almost like mm. reversed roles in a way. Like they would tell me to eat my vegetables. I tell them, book your appointment. Yeah. Um, we talk every day and the first thing mm -hmm. she said when the call started was like okay i did it you can stop harassing me now i booked my appointment <laughs> i i went to cvs so yeah i'm i'm thrilled oh that's great you i mean they read your work i'm assuming and so they know what's going on um one would hope that they read it i i, I cannot confirm or deny i, I think they do but yeah um, <laughs> to be honest it was more just kind of reminding them about the very privileged situation they're in i think because there's so much vaccine in the u.s for them, it was kind of like a chore that they just had to tick off their to-do list in a way, yeah. or at least that's kind of the impression that I got. Um, you know, they're in Northern California. Things seem to be fairly okay there. My family's been very good at lying low this pandemic. So mm -hmm. I don't think there was a sense of urgency for them in the way that perhaps others have felt around getting vaccinated. Certainly the way that I feel about it here in the UK. But yeah, I just kind of basically told them, look, you, you live in a country with more doses than it's ever going to need. Um, there are parts of the world, India included right now. I did send a piece about India to my mom to kind of really hammer home just the severity of this crisis that it's not over. Like you guys need to get vaccinated. Could you explain the situation in India for listeners? Yeah. So, I mean, if you were paying attention to India about a month ago, anyone like you or I probably wouldn't have thought that we'd be here now. You know, cases weren't that high particularly for a country of 1.3 billion people. And the government was really talking about the pandemic like it was a challenge of the past. The health minister had said mm -hmm. that India was in the end game of this pandemic. Meanwhile, you saw large political rallies, religious festivals, um, even some cricket matches, if I'm not mistaken, between India and England. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it really just felt like people were lowering their guard. And Life was kind of resuming normalcy. There wasn't a lot of social distancing and mask wearing. Fast forward several weeks later, we started to see these incredible increase, increases, both in cases and deaths. And over the past week, the severity of the crisis really, I think, was just heard around the world because not only was India recording more than 350,000 cases a day. I mean, I think it today it surpassed more than 300,000 new cases for the sixth day in a row. Oh my gosh. Um, I mean, if you look at the charts, it's not a wave or a curve as such, but it's like a wall. It just shoots up and there's no real end in sight. Um, and then of course, I think, you know, all that data, all those numbers really kind of hit home when you see the actual images of people yeah. waiting outside of hospitals, not being able to get in, not having enough oxygen, doctors who are just struggling saying they've never dealt with anything like this even during the first wave mm -hmm. um so it's just a really really depressing situation yeah and not to be too morbid about it there's something that doesn't come through in the numbers that does when you hear about stories like that there aren't enough graveyards there's not enough wood to burn funeral pyres people are dying because of something as simple as not enough oxygen in a hospital if you're lucky enough to get a hospital bed. Um, those things, at least something of that severity, 
I think most of us thought was behind us, mm-hmm. you know, just given what we know about how to prevent this, we have some level of vaccination, we have some level of population immunity, you know, we it, uh, clearly is far from over, but I didn't think we would get to a point of that level of severity at this point in the pandemic. What, I mean, how, how did that happen? Was there just, is India really far behind on vaccination? Is there not as much population immunity as, you know, they might've thought? That's part of it. And I I think there were a number of factors. Um, The the first is with vaccination, um, India actually, despite the fact that it's home to the world's largest vaccine maker, the Serum Institute, and despite the fact that it's engaged in a lot of vaccine diplomacy, it's given doses to a number of its neighbors um, in the region. Um, India actually hasn't vaccinated a large portion of its population. I think the fully vaccinated population still stands at around, I think, 1.7% was the last number I've seen. So oh, wow. really, really small numbers in vaccination. And even with India currently using all of its domestic manufacturing capabilities, just only targeted on India that isn't proving enough right now. Um, so vaccinations was part of it, but also I think kind of what I talked about before, the general complacency that I think had kind of overtaken the country, um, but also variants. I mean, virtually, I think every variant of concern that we know about, whether it's the South Africa variant, the Brazilian variant, the British variant, they're all in India right now. Um, and we've seen the emergence of a new Indian variant, which is also currently being studied, but, you know, some experts that I've spoken to fear that it's behind a lot of the surge that we're seeing right now. So it's kind of a confluence of factors, none of them very good at all. That's going to be something that's really important to keep an eye on in coming weeks is what we can understand about how many people are being reinfected. Is this simply a case of, you know, immunologically naive population or did immunity wane and people are being reinfected or are the variants hitting people in in new ways that we need to understand better. But in any case, it's clearly acutely a crisis for the country, which, as I understand, had been exporting a lot of vaccines, but now has to stop that and focus more domestically. Does that mean adjacent countries who are counting on vaccines from India are going to feel ripple effects of this? Yeah, exactly. Um, And unfortunately, it's going to be some of the countries that need vaccines the most that currently aren't getting them. Um, The Serum Institute is one of the biggest providers to COVAX, which is the international initiative aimed at equalizing vaccine distribution around the world. And there are 92 low and middle income countries that have been relying on the Serum Institute to begin vaccinations in those countries. And the Serum Institute had to go to COVAX and effectively say, look, we, you know, we can't ignore the crisis at home. We need to turn our attention to India, so we're not going to be able to supply as many doses as we said we would, at least for the next couple of months. So, um, you know, it's kind of like a domino effect in a way. One country's crisis is every country's crisis because, you know, what happens in India doesn't stay there, Um, not just with variants, but also, you know, with vaccines. If India can't act as the pharmacy of the world, as it's known, then other countries suffer too. Is there a country in the world that has a ton of vaccines and could help out? Oh, let me think. Um, oh, you know what? I heard yeah. the United States has, has a few. Has a few. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wait, how much extra does the US have? Is that known? 
I mean, the, the data that I've seen, so Duke University, their Institute of Global Health has done a lot of work kind of tracking vaccine procurement and manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And what they found is that the U.S. has secured more doses than it will ever need. Um, but I think it's estimated in its most recent report that even if you take out the doses that the U.S. will likely need for booster shots and to vaccinate children when they become eligible, that the U.S. could have as many as 300 million surplus doses by the end of oh. July, I want to say. So quite a lot. Wow. Up until this point, though, the messaging that we've heard from the Biden administration is that we don't have enough surplus to be confident to part with the vaccines, at least until very recently, that was the messaging. And that's what you call vaccine nationalism when like one country is kind of at the expense of other countries just looking out for themselves. Exactly. Actually, this is kind of a weird metaphor, but the way that I think about Mm -hmm. vaccine nationalism is, um, you know, when you're on a plane and the cabin Mm -hmm. pressure drops and oxygen masks fall in front of you. Hopefully this has never actually happened, but this does happen. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've seen it in the little drawings. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, like those those little kind of, yeah. And, and they tell you the common refrain, like, if this happens, don't panic, just put your mask on. And then once you put your mask on, help the person next to you. So the way that predominantly wealthy countries have kind of done this, if you swap out oxygen masks with vaccines, they basically said, we're going to put on our own mask. We're going to take care of ourselves first and vaccinate mm-hmm. our population. But in a twist to the common refrain of like, then you help the other person. They're like, actually, but we're also going to take some of these other oxygen masks on the plane, just in case. We may not need to use them, but we're just going to keep them. But there are a finite number of masks, just as there are a finite number of vaccines. Yes, I mean, that is so chilling. Oh, my God. That is a really horrifying (laughs) metaphor or whatever it, it is. It's the only way I've kind of figured out how to sort of drive home the mm-hmm. fact is it's to hear that wealthy countries, because they have the purchasing power, hedge their bets and bought a lot of doses. I don't think that quite that is what has happened, but it doesn't really quite drill in the impact that that has on countries who didn't have that purchasing power and who couldn't purchase those doses. Whereas this metaphor makes it very real. It, it really does. And uh, are there examples of other countries stepping in like uh- I feel like the US, you know, because of public pressure, are going to help more. But um, do you know about that? Are there countries around the world that are offering to help now? Well, so India was one of those countries. They were actually doing Mm -hmm. a lot of vaccine diplomacy, as it's come to be known. Russia and China are also very big players in the space. They have been quite aggressively sending their, their doses around the world, some for free, some for a very cheap price. Other countries, predominantly, you know, those in Europe, Britain, the United States, um, they've largely stayed out of this game. Um, and the main reason is that, you know, they have doses, but they don't have enough of them. Um, and in the meantime, you know, other countries like China and Russia are kind of stepping in and filling that void. And what about uh, export controls on the, the materials that go into making vaccines? Could more be done to support India's manufacturing? Yeah, definitely. That's something that's been pushed for. Um, Both India and South Africa actually appealed to the World Trade Organization to temporarily waive um, rules around intellectual property protections. Those are things for patents, you know, regulatory data, which would basically allow other countries to produce COVID vaccines and therapies without fear of being sued. Um, And this is an appeal that's been supported 
by around 100 mostly developing countries, um, several former leaders, and even some U.S. lawmakers. It seems to me we're sort of behind the ball on that. Some of these vaccines, you can't immediately ramp up production of, certainly not very easily. But people think that if we open the intellectual rights right now, a country like India might be able to to make more than they currently are. Yeah, that's the hope. But I think critics would probably say that it's not a silver bullet, that as you just mentioned, you know, manufacturing requires the raw materials to make vaccines. And those aren't exactly um, in high supply right now. So um, it's it's a way that I think certainly some of the lawmakers in the U.S. that I've spoken to about this, they see it as a way to effectively lift the burden on other countries and say, look, we need to give countries that need vaccines the means to make it themselves, that we mm-hmm. shouldn't just be, you know, hogging this intellectual data that, you know, that and it's a temporary waiver, right? So the idea is that, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. As for whether it will happen at the moment, you know, the US, the EU, the UK, and a host of other countries are opposed to it. So it kind of remains to be seen whether there will be enough pressure to change that. I mean, we've already seen so much movement, I think, in the last few days. You know, before just a few days ago, the U.S. wasn't sharing raw materials. A few days ago, the U.S. wouldn't countenance sharing its doses, at least not anytime soon. Now we're seeing the U.S. do both of those things. So um, potentially, maybe the U.S. will reconsider its position on this, but I guess it remains to be seen. Give us a sense of scale, though. I mean, you said 1.7% of the population or, you know, roughly is vaccinated in India. How many more people does that leave to vaccinate? A lot. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, so experts that I've spoken to have told me that India is vaccinating about 3 million people a day. But in order for them to vaccinate enough of their population to sort of mitigate this crisis, they would need to be doing closer to 10 million a day for that to happen in a few months' time. So it's a lot of vaccine that is needed. And even if India were to ramp up its manufacturing capacity from the current 70 million a month to 100, as I think is hoped, it would still be quite a stretch. It would take some time. Yeah. Can I just ask about the variant again? Because I mean, I don't know if it's just like a selfish response, but one thing that you have both written about and we've talked about on the show is until it's gone for everybody, it's not gone. And so like this double mutant variant, can you explain what that is, Jim? Is that the one we were talking about earlier? I could try. But is it more transmissible or like what? We don't know yet. Um, You don't know. Okay. Okay. So... It's sort of a weird term. I don't like the term double mutant. It is being used by officials and by media. So no, no, cool. Let's use it. But all these strains are constantly mutating. And when a mutation Mm -hmm. becomes significant, it gets a name. Like the worst one is uh, E484K, which is the one in South Africa and Brazil. It seems to help evade immunological protection, at least partly. Um, and this one, uh, this strain that's in India, B1617, has uh, two mutations of note, but has many mutations. I mean, so um, okay. just two mm-hmm. ominous ones, but we don't know more. But that's one of the things you suggest in your story, Yasmin, is that maybe other countries could help do more sequencing, in, you know, genomic sequencing of the strains that are circulating in India to <laughs> help yeah. better understand <laughs> to what degree is this variant actually, you know, spreading in different ways, because that's in everyone's interest to understand globally. 
Yeah, exactly. And as I understand it, India's genomic sequencing, like they're sequencing very, very few cases right now, which is a problem because that effectively means that you don't really know what's happening on the ground beyond the fact that hospitals are overwhelmed and that death counts are rising. But until you can kind of ramp that up further, it's hard to really know what risk this variant poses and, you know, whether it can evade vaccine immunity or anything like that. I mean, there's not there. Obviously, we don't know anything about it yet. So there's, you know, there's no suggestion to say that it's that serious. Um, I don't even think they've labeled it as a variant of concern yet. I think it's still just a variant of mm-hmm. interest. But yeah, I mean, I, I think the broader lesson is that we really do need to start and by we, I mean the world, need to start mm-hmm. treating these variants like they could be a variant of concern or like they could be a variant that could, you know, God forbid, evade vaccine or be more transmissible or more deadly. I think we're soon going to find, and India is an example of this, that real political leadership is going to mean looking to the rest of the world and figuring out how do I protect my population and everyone else from other looming threats and kind of understanding that just because you vaccinate your population doesn't mean that they're automatically safe if this pandemic is, mm-hmm. you know, ravaging the rest of the world. Yes. I feel like that's the key point where people are still not seeing, and, and we're a little late to this, but when the United States decided not to commit to this COVAX alliance that would, you know, globally equitably distribute vaccines and decided we were going to make sure our 18 year olds were vaccinated before, you know, healthcare workers in other countries, that was done under this pretense that you might be able to argue is in the US interest, because that's our job. That's the job of our leadership is to protect our citizens. But that's just literally, as you're saying, that's not how you protect your own citizens. Um, you don't let the, the the virus run wild around the world and vaccinate your own population. That's not in your own interest. I don't know. How do we make this point clearer? Yeah. I mean, one would think that crises like India would make that point that, you know, it's a short term solution, really. And, you know, I'm seeing that the Biden administration announced that they would donate the 60 million AstraZeneca doses Mm -hmm. that they're not using. I think that was a positive first step. But, you know, 60 million is a small chunk of the hundreds of millions that the U.S. is projected to have in surplus. And to put it into even further context, I mean, COVAX has, last I saw, only distributed 45 million doses globally. So it's not a small number, but we're going to need so much more to equalize vaccine distribution and hopefully bring about an end to this pandemic sooner. It's incumbent upon all of us to ensure that if outbreaks pop up anywhere, that they're put out like fires. Um, You know, you wouldn't, if if there were a fire that started in your neighbor's house, you wouldn't look to it and be like, oh, well, that's not really my problem because, you know, it's Mm -hmm. over there. I mean, it could spread to you. Uh, sorry to insert so many metaphors. And <laughs> I'm like, just- wait, now I'm in a plane. I'm flying over my neighbor's <laughs> house. If that's on fire, what am I supposed to do now? <laughs> yes, you, you pour water. <laughs> you open the door. <laughs> you open the door to the cabin. You open pour the water cabin down. hatch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would not make the oxygen situation any better. <laughs> <laughs> well, thankfully, you have lots of masks. So <laughs> the advice about like variants and vaccine diplomacy reminds me of masks. Like, even if you're vaccinated yourself you still want to behave like there's a danger to you for everyone's benefit. And it's not just pretense either. It's true. (laughs) Yeah. Listen, let me explain to you both how we're going to solve this. Okay. (laughs) Maybe she has good Um, ideas. I really Outside of the box thinking is what we need. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. 
But Jim, I mean, the piece that you wrote about one vaccine to rule them all, is there something in that? Because that could be a really cheap one that everyone could share and that everyone wouldn't be so psycho about holding on to. Yeah, that is the idea of a universal Mm -hmm. SARS-CoV-2 vaccine and then potentially even a universal coronavirus vaccine for other coronaviruses suddenly getting a lot of attention from Dr. Fauci and from lots of other people as we start to, you know, see the scope of how difficult it is to track these variants. And, you know, the U.S. can Mm -hmm. barely get a handle on its own genomic sequencing, um, assisting India, many other countries would be a huge, huge undertaking, which I completely think is necessary. But in the meantime, it's kind of like, can we just get ahead of this? Can we get a vaccine that will target a more conserved region that more of these variants share in common because our current vaccines are built around the strain that was sequenced in Wuhan in January of 2020. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, we don't want to just target that strain and then hope that there's overflow protection. We want to look at these different common mutations and protect against all of them. That seems to be the really urgent task right now. Uh, But it's not happening tomorrow. It doesn't Mm -hmm. solve the India crisis, but it it could help prevent something like this happening in the future. Not to get off on a rant. Um, Your story is excellent and lays out several things that countries can do and should do and policies that can be put in place to stop this from happening in other places to stop it from happening again in India or elsewhere. And and I hope uh, a lot of people read and take that into consideration. Yasmin. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your work and attention to this. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I've, I've been a, a very loyal listener of the show since day one, oh. really. So I'm very excited to be here and discussing this. I, I wish it were less of a bleak subject, but it, it is an important story. So I hope more people pay attention. And I mean, whatever way you cut it, it's a pandemic podcast. Yeah. Do you have a position on uh, condiments? <laughs> oh, the is this the mayo <laughs> ketchup thing? So I yeah. must admit, I didn't grow up in a household that ever used mayo. I don't, I don't want to speak for all Arab households, but mm-hmm. that was just not really a thing. Zatar, zatar on chips or probably fries. Sorry. Yeah, but you could put zatar on mayo on fries. Didn't you ever think about that? <laughs> I would try that. I'm going to try it and I'll report back to you. I'm, I'm very excited. Thank you so much for joining, uh, Yasmin. <laughs> Thank you guys for having me. Bye, I'm waving. <laughs> Bye. Oh, oh, I can see you, okay. Bye. You can't see me, but I'm waving too. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye. Thanks so much. Take care. See you. Do you remember when we spoke to Ruth Faden a few months ago? I do, yeah. Um, she talked about this kind of two worlds where there would be vaccinated populations and unvaccinated. And it feels like that is very quickly happening. People are going to be flying back and forth from European countries to the U.S. in in the summer and have all the vaccines that they want very shortly. And then there are other countries that are on fire. Totally. And, you know, when you look at the map of the world and see who's okay now and who's in trouble it's just so grim because it just plays out along wealth lines yeah you think we should have like a remix of the episodes where we talk to people who predicted this and then it's like (laughs) record scratch it's happening (laughs) there have been so many times in the pandemic where i wanted to be like yeah listen we've reported this we said it was going to happen and it just also i don't feel like it helps to to gloat uh (laughs) 
other than I to know. be like, please don't be surprised. You know, this is what we knew would happen. And what will be another challenge is say one of these variants, one of these quote double or triple mutants, uh, again, don't like the term, but say that it comes to the US and becomes dominant and starts evading vaccines or starts at least, it just makes our immunity last less long. So our vaccines last, you know, reliably nine months instead of three years. And so will the US go on another vaccination hoarding campaign for booster shots? Or will Mm -hmm. it take the opportunity to think, okay, well, wait, we can't just keep doing this. We can't just keep playing whack-a-mole with the variants as, as yeah. uh, Tony described it to me, but we need a new mm-hmm. approach. We need to think more comprehensively globally and and not just do this again. We're not going to live in a bubble. Yeah. So like learning, learning more yeah. and changing our behavior. It's possible. It's possible. Um, well, you know, I'm so glad that I get to talk to you about this stuff and to like brilliant people like Yasmin. And I know the listeners feel the same. Um, Jim, I was going to say we got a note from Cammy, who we actually spoke to on one of the early episodes that I did too. Oh, yeah. She was in Idaho. Do you remember? Right, right. Then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's so cool. But um, so Cammy had a rough go of it with COVID. And we just wanted to send our love to you, Cammy, and say, we hear you. We appreciate you. We got your email. Thank you. Yeah. Maeve, since you've been looking at the emails, did you get any mm-hmm. constructive feedback about condiments, mayo, ketchup? on fries yeah a ton i've been searching specifically for that obviously and the 100 percent, 100 percent in favor of minis so it's quite a stunning but i'm careful with data and these data tell me 100 percent mayonnaise 100 percent of the time sometimes with that ketchup added so you're a statistician as well as a medical doctor, it seems. Thank you. Yeah, I, I only announced on the show last week is kind of shy about it, but that I am a medical doctor. <laughs> um, in my current form, I couldn't be a doctor. But in the world where I'm a doctor, I've got a very different brain, very different family background. Oh, okay. I wouldn't want your mm-hmm. brain to change one iota, Maeve. Mm, thanks, Jim. You're welcome. The secret is sugar. Mm, plus mayo. <laughs> 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 okay, so I'll do the credits, will I? Please, yeah. Okay. Social Distance is produced by Kevin Townsend with help from senior producer AC Valdez. We love hearing from listeners. So if there's something you'd like us to talk about on an upcoming show, email us, socialdistance at theatlantic.com or leave a voicemail at 202-642-6487. And finally, as always, if you like this show and you want access to all of The Atlantic's journalism, the best way to do that is by subscribing at theatlantic.com slash support us. Bye, Maeve. Bye, Jim. Thanks for today. You too. So should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander, or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly. How much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.